Holy Spirit, Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites, who were on the west side of the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites, who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. Now, this doesn't mean circumcise the same person twice. It's circumcising the second generation. The first generation had been circumcised, but not the second So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness to all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was, when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. Then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. And it came to pass... When Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. As far as the reading of God's holy word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, we come to you. And we would ask that by your marvelous mercy, according to your never-failing grace, 
you might grant to us wisdom and understanding that comes only from your word by by your spirit. And so even now that you would grant to us wisdom that blossoms and ripens into righteousness. For our desire, O Lord, is that we might glorify and enjoy you all of our days. We pray this in your name. Amen. Maybe you've heard or seen, even in some movies, the breaking of the fourth wall. You may not know what that means, but in any of these tales that are recorded on video, uh, the members on stage or behind the camera never break that wall that separates the audience from the actors unless there is some narrative or thematic purpose. Ferris Bueller did this a lot, and others, you'll find it, or perhaps even in those films where there is lengthy narration. When you move through the story of redemption, there are moments that key us into, you need to listen, you need to pay attention. Those moments come when we see Christ on earth as men saw him, that is, in the flesh. One of those occasions is when God enters into covenant with Abraham and he visits with him. There is an occasion, even, where Christ stands next to Jacob in Genesis 28. And there, at the foot of a great heavenly temple, angels are ascending and descending. And in that moment, when the sort of sky, the fabric between heaven and earth is torn in two, Jacob sees the the kind of cosmic supernatural clockwork of the way in which God fellowships with men. God, in his triune majesty, dwells with men through Christ because later in John chapter 1, Christ says, it is upon me that angels ascend and descend. And you look at that moment in Genesis 28 and you go, oh, I see now how it's possible. And then here in Joshua chapter 5, we have another glimpse. Not to mention the story of Abraham returning from battle. He meets Melchizedek. Some consider Melchizedek to be a pre-incarnate encounter with Christ as well. All of these occasions are kind of, not interruptions, but clear exposition as to what God is doing and how he is doing it. In Joshua chapter 6, how do the walls of Jericho fall by singing? There have been some historical documentary type series devoted to the sonic capacity of a large people and that it was maybe, maybe, a sonic event. Please, come on, guys. You're stretching it. It's kind of like saying we came from monkeys, right? This is what people will believe in order to get away from the absolute truth of the matter. Joshua encounters the one in Joshua 5 who will bring the walls of Jericho down, who is on a mighty, righteous crusade through the land in order to give to Israel the nation that he had promised to them. The people consecrated to him. 
And so it is in this meeting, this meeting between Joshua, and I would argue, and I think it's very clear, who the commander of the army of the Lord is, Christ himself, a pre-incarnate second person of the Godhead. We find one who is able not only to conquer the nations, but to roll away the approach of his people. And in this, he conquers in two ways. He conquers by grace, and he conquers by judgment. Two points that I want to make tonight. The first, the rolling away of reproach. The rolling away of reproach. And then secondly, the one who makes men and places holy. The one who makes men and places holy. Now, opening in chapter 5, the first verse, we see what the commander of the army of the Lord has been up to prior to meeting him at the end of the chapter. He has been sowing in the camps of the pagan nations in the land of Canaan fear. This is something Israel could not do. In fact, he is doing all that Israel could not do. 1 Samuel 15, Proverbs chapter 21, 1 Corinthians 15, they all resonate with this same theme, that the victory, the battle, belongs to the Lord. Christ is moving, or as Lewis says, Aslan is on the move. And when Aslan is on the move, what happens? Winter ends and spring comes. Christ, in the land of Canaan, is on the move. And while he is moving, he is providing for Israel a much-needed peace until two things can happen. They are consecrated by circumcision, and they celebrate the Passover. Now, already Israel has been consecrated through the baptism of a nation through the Jordan. Much like the first generation through the Red Sea, the second generation is also brought from one place to another as an act of salvation, of consecration. And so, uh, when you look at some of the Dutch Reformed confessions, they speak of the Red Sea as a kind of baptism. It is. It's this good theology. And you need to think of the Red Sea and the Jordan as a kind of baptism. You go down into the water and you come back out. You are laid down. You die with Christ and you are raised with Christ. You are identified then as his child. And after that, it was, verse 1, that all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side, remember they moved east to west to the Jordan, and all the kings of the Canaanites... And all those who dwelt by the sea, their hearts melted. Why? Before the children of Israel. But why? Because of what God had done. This is what Rahab confesses in chapter 2. Surely God is doing something among you. And it is that beholding of the power of God that converts her whereby then she pleads for her family. And they are saved. They are delivered. After they pass over, and we read of this element of God going before Israel and striking fear into the hearts of those who are in the land, God then calls Joshua to tell the second generation of males to be circumcised. And that is what they do. Morale was probably low for a time, Right? No one was ready to pick up a sword and go fight. 
This is not what I would call a, an efficient tactic. Let's go to war, but before we do that, let's do some wound-inflicting, self-infliction, and let's sit around for a while until we heal. You lose the element of surprise to some degree, and you lose any ability to respond in case a force invades. It requires what? Trust that the Lord is your protector. I know that seems perhaps like a small point, but it is not a small and simple point for saints, those who have given to the Lord the battle. We must not, we must not jettison our call to sanctify ourselves to him. Lord's Day worship is an element like this, right? One day a week, we lay down our arms to some degree, in great degree, and we say we will rest here for a time and we will consecrate ourselves in worship to the Lord. And it is, in fact, in worship before the Lord where we receive from him his consecrating work that we are then sent out into the world, strengthened and made ready to do all his holy will. And not only are they consecrated as a people, by the circumcision of the males, the second generation, because they had not done it yet. And the reason here is given because they were walking for 40 years. <laughs> the first generation is now dead. But the reason is what? Let's look at verse 9. Not just because they hadn't, but the reason for circumcision, what it signs and seals, is the rolling away of the reproach of Egypt. Now, what does that mean? It isn't a kind of ethnic or racial animosity. It is what? It is covenantal in nature, in its theme and expression. And we learn what Egypt represents at the beginning of the giving of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who led you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of what? Sin and bondage circumcision signed and sealed the taking away of sin and death these people now in their bodies at least some of them the men the families that they represented the whole nation together no longer had the stain of egypt upon them This day I have rolled away, the Lord says, the reproach of Egypt from you. This was a people who at one point begged to go back. Send us back to Egypt. It was so much easier. They, or maybe it was easier. Trust in the Lord is not always easy, but it is certainly better. And here this people and the work of consecration was completed. And now... In light of that consecration, verse 10, the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and they kept the Passover, which is what? It is the festival of consecration. When that angel of death that moved through Egypt in that, that final plague, putting to death the firstborn sons of those Egyptians who did not confess Yahweh as their king, but those who got beneath the bloodstained lintel, the lintel is that top part of the door, in case you wondered what it was called. Blood on the top, blood on the sides, the blood of a shed lamb. And those who hid beneath the blood were saved from the wrath of God. 
This is what Passover represents, the passing over of God's judgment. A consecrated people, no longer eating manna. A wilderness meal, right? No more MREs. You know those things you can go buy at REI if you're really ambitious. Have you ever had any of those freeze-dried meals? Buy the real deal. Just pack in steaks. <laughs> no more MREs. From that point on, a shift, a change. They would eat of the land of Canaan. When Christ appeared to the disciples after his resurrection, he ate fish with them. It's just fish. But it wasn't just fish, was it? It was a meal of fellowship with the risen Christ. What is this meal before us tonight? If it is not a meal of resurrection fellowship. In fact, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are no longer in the wilderness, but in the land with Christ. And he feeds us from the rich bounty of his resurrection. Christ was rolling away the reproach of Israel. And then the narrative shifts. We go from a nation to one man. Joshua, a fitting leader, goes out to spy, to scout what would come next. Verse 13, it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold. So there he is. As they're moving, they're camping in the plains of Jericho. There is a great fortified wall city that is Jericho. Rahab lived there. God made it clear to Israel, I will give you the city. And so they're moving closer to the city, preparing for war. They are a nomadic people with mighty warriors, but they have no siege elements, no catapults, nothing to breach the walls. And Joshua goes forth to look at the city. This is what commanders do, right? We're going to scout it out. We're going to see what's the plan of attack. And as he's standing, he's looking at the city. Who's that? A man of physical appearance. A capital M man in my Bible. And Joshua notices something unique about him. He beholds this man in verse 13, and he's there almost all of a sudden with his hand on his sword. Now, startling moment to be sure, maybe out of the blue, there he is. Where did he come from? And Joshua asks a very logical question. Who are you for? Are you on my side? Or are you on the side of those who dwell in the land that we are called to conquer. Now, this is a very logical question, but it is not a good question. But it is the only question he can ask as a man. He does not understand yet what is happening. He discovers the commander of the, or rather, the commander of the army of the Lord appears to him. And he asks, who are you for? It's impossible for me, I think visually, spatially. In fact, maybe you do this. You're driving someplace, and it's been a while since you've been there, and then you run into one of those intersections. Wait, I've been here before. <laughs> In the days, though, of Google Maps and Apple Maps, you lose that a little bit, that sense of awareness. 
And I think when I read through the scriptures and these old stories, what that moment must have looked like. And if I could paint or draw, not that I would dare draw an image of the commander of the army of the Lord. It is impossible to imagine for a moment what that must have been like. There are these two men standing before the great walls of the city. One man is standing there going, I don't know how to breach these walls. And the other man is standing there going, I know exactly how to breach these walls. Because it is not the voice of the Israelites. Right? It's the voice of the one who shatters the cedars of Lebanon. That is the one whom Joseph, sorry, Joshua, encounters. Two men. One great, one really great. Who stand before a great city. And there they converse about what is about to happen, how it will happen, and how we are to think of this commander of the army of the Lord and his march through the land. Now there's Joshua by Jericho. He finds himself with God, and he asks that question, I've said it already, are you for us or for our adversaries? And here is a very simple, not overbearing, but simple correction. No, no. But, as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Christ has been sent by the Father to do what? To lead Israel around the city seven times in order to bring low its walls. Now, Joshua is asking the wrong question, but Joshua is not blaspheming. He's learning in the way that Adam learned that he needed a wife, in the way that God withholds certain information, not only to teach the person in the moment something, but also the reader something. That we are to never think of the presence and power of Christ as a mere talisman, like a genie in a bottle. That he serves our purposes. No. The Father has sent the Son to fulfill the promise that God made to his special people to take control of the land. Christ is doing that. What must then the people of God do in obedience? Follow. Simply follow. Exactly as God commands. Do what he has commanded in the way that he has commanded it. And what God has said to the nation of Israel is that through trumpet, worship, and sword warfare, you will take dominion of this land. And it is not unlike the work of the church today. But hear me. We worship and we do battle. In the same power but with a different sword, right? We use the sword of the Spirit, the spirit whom Christ, the commander of the army of the Lord, has now given to us to take dominion. And we look at this big world, just like David looked at Goliath. And there were all these Israelites who were terrified. And in fact, if you do want to turn to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15, I want us to read what David says to Goliath. As he prepares to put that giant even to death. Although I have the reference wrong. Which I regret greatly. Because boy, is it 
a good one. Anyway, my mistake. David comes before Goliath, and he says to him, You come at me with what? Sword and shield. But I come to you in the name of the Lord. And at the end of David's speech to Goliath, he says, in essence, the battle belongs to the Lord. The victory belongs to him. And after David says these things to Goliath, he takes his little sling. He slings that stone into Goliath's head, and then he walks over to that great giant, stunned. And he takes Goliath's own sword and takes off his head. I think that may be one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Saul, the tallest man in Israel, obviously not nearly as tall as Goliath, but the biggest man there, aside from Goliath, was afraid. In fact, David attempted to put on Saul's armor, but it was too heavy and too big for him. David, a small man, stands before Goliath. Why? Not in his own strength. Not because he is confident in his arm and in his sling but that God will direct whatever he does in order to bring about victory for his chosen people. God is the one who gives us the victory. And so when we march through this world as it were, we come to the one who leads the way, and it is easy for us to ask that question, who are you for? Are you for the OPC? Lord, are you, which denomination would you belong to? No, no. I am but the commander of the army of the Lord. You follow me. And that's enough. Christ is not for us in the way we wish him to be. In fact, when Christ came to earth, he did so out of love for his beloved bride, but according to the will of his heavenly father. Christ was there out of love for those whom the Father had given him, but he was acting on orders of the Father. No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now, the way in which Joshua responds is very telling and is a direct response to the very thing that Jesus, well, he's not yet Jesus, but Christ says he worships, which is proof of what? Who Joshua is for. Joshua doesn't say, well, wait, wait, wait. I'm going to need an assurance that you're on our side. No, in fact, what we have is an assurance of the righteousness and faith of the one who commands Israel as a man, Joshua. He falls on his face to earth and he worships him and he says, you tell me what to do. And that is why Israel did what they did when they marched around the walls of Jericho. I'm sorry, Lord, you want me to do what? You, you want us to sing and then blow trumpets after we've walked silently a little bit? This doesn't seem like a tactic. It just seems like exercise. But it wasn't cardio that defeated Jericho, was it? It was Christ. It was Christ. And Israel shared in the victory because they followed Christ. In fact, Jericho was leveled 
because in response to the march of Yahweh through Israel, they did not bow in worship, but they stood in defiance. You see, Christ's purposes are not just to make men holy, but to make the land holy, free from idolatry and pagan worship, free from the violence that comes with godlessness and violence. Jericho could not stand because they did not bow to the king. Their hearts melted in fear, but not in reverence. And so their walls were laid low. They did not belong to Christ, and so they were judged by Christ. And this great purpose we read of even in verse 15. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you are standing is holy. Why? For the same reason that Moses was told at the burning bush, by the same person, Christ, take off your shoes for the ground upon which you are standing is holy. This is the operation of a holy God. Wherever he is, he makes holy, which is why the holy of holies was called the holy of holies, which is why the Israelites could not enter into that place because there God dwelt. God's intention for the land was to make it holy. And to fill it with a holy people. Joshua's longing was to worship. Which reveals the conquest of Christ over this man's heart. Many Israelites were not conquered in that way. In fact, the vast majority of them rejected the call to enter into the land of rest. But not Joshua and Caleb. And here they are. Joshua leading Israel. And this glorious purpose revealed, and the way in which it would happen. You see, when Israel marched around Jericho, they did so following someone they had not really seen. Not like Joshua. They saw the smoke and the fire, and they had seen that in times past. But this was a different kind of vision. And that is why visions like these are of great importance to us even today. And this is why the cross is of such great importance to us today. This is why we have to go back and read the Gospels and see Christ upon the earth even today. Because we see the mechanism, the means by which God brings about the fulfillment of the promises to his people then and now. Christ is on the move. And the question for us is not, is Christ for us? But are we with Christ? And so when you profess your faith, what are you saying? I belong to him. He is my king. And wherever he goes, I will follow him. My wife and I spent a couple days outside the house recently on a little getaway. And the whole time we were gone, we had these two cats. And they're just looking everywhere for my wife. Where is she? Where did she go? And they're meowing at our door. They're going all over the place. Where is she? And then she comes home, and everywhere she goes, they're following her. It's the strangest thing, these cats. They're like dogs in that regard. And so I'm working this morning, getting ready for a sermon, and I'm sitting there looking at my notes, drinking a little bit of coffee, and Carla comes down into the kitchen. She's preparing breakfast, and there are those two cats. Where are we going next? (laughs) 
The Lord's day is much like that. Lord, where are we going next? Christ desires the kinds of people that will look at him and go, okay, we're for you. Samuel says, what, here am I, send me. The response of Isaiah and others, the faithfulness and the glory of the saints is tied to the glory of Christ. And our response must be in the same way as we come to the table, Lord, we will follow you. We will follow you. Let's pray. Lord.